Today we're starting our Treasuring Christ series. This is our stewardship series, financial stewardship series, and uh, this will be a uh, seven-week series that we're going to go through, starting from now, culminating on until November 17th, where we'll call on a one-time first fruits offering. And just to review, what are we going to use that one-time first fruits offering? Is to pay down the the mortgage so that we could make it easier to enfold the mortgage into the general fund. All right, and so that's the, that's the thought there, and that's the hope that we're praying for. And so this is what we're going to be teaching on. And we're getting the children involved. So we have a sticker here that uh, Sister Irene Marr designed. It's called Treasuring Christ, as 2 Corinthians 9, 7 on it. It says, each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion. For God loves a cheerful giver, 2 Corinthians 9, 7. And the children have been given these stickers in the, in the church school class. And we're encouraging parents to help the children and shepherd them in learning to be a good steward of their finances, even if they don't have an income. Perhaps you could generate some kind of income for them by doing chores or whatnot. You could encourage them and any which way, and we were encouraging to put the sticker on a jar or box where they could collect their coins and, and bills and whatnot, okay? And this is a great opportunity for our entire church family to be involved in this way. And so, anyway, we're beginning our, this whole series on stewardship on treasuring Christ in communion, all right? This is, today is a very interactive day. Today is a very interactive day where we get to partake in the Holy Communion and the message is about treasuring Christ in communion. Today we're addressing the holiness of communion. When you come up, this is a very sacred event, very sacred uh, uh, ordinance that God has called us to do. And we're also going to be addressing certain divisions in the church, starting in Corinth and maybe perhaps in Evergreen SUV. We'll be out of 1 Corinthians 11.23 today. So if you want to um, uh, look it up uh, in your Bibles or your phones or your iPads, I-, I invite you to do that. Well, as you're turning there, let me give you a little context. <clears throat> the men learned last week that uh, a little bit about Corinth. Corinth was similar to Los Angeles, Southern California. Affluence. You know, this is a port city where there's a lot of trade and commerce. There's a lot of money circulating around Corinth. Similar to L.A., education was at a premium. There there were universities all over the place. uh, uh, Philosophy and human wisdom were held in high esteem. Similar to L.A., think about how many junior colleges, how many universities and and world-class universities there are. People from around the world would fly in to be educated here in Southern California alone. Corinth had a lot of culture. They were into the arts and entertainment. They had stadiums erected for Olympic-type games. We have stadiums. We have museums. We have arts, entertainment. We have Hollywood. We're the epicenter of all that for perhaps even the whole world, similar to Los Angeles, Corinth, and L.A. But Paul had an admonishment for the church in Corinth, all right? Paul was admonishing the church in Corinth. They were taking communion in an unworthy manner. And we're going to learn about what that was and what it is for our church family, perhaps. And it divided the church. Communion was supposed to unite the church. It divided the church in Corinth. And so today, we're talking about 
treasuring Christ in communion. So please rise. We'll be out of 1 Corinthians 11, 23 to 34. Just, that was just a little context. So as you read this, you have a little bit more deeper understanding. Verse 23. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, Paul writes, that the Lord Jesus in the night in which he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Verse 25, in the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. Verse 28, but a man must examine himself, and in so doing, he is to eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself, if he does not judge the body rightly. For this reason, many among you are weak and sick, and a number asleep or dead. But if we judge ourselves rightly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged, we are disciplined by the Lord so that we will not be condemned along with the world. Verse 33, So then, my brethren, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. Wait for one another. another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home. Why? So that you will not come together for judgment. The remaining matters I will arrange when I come. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this time. Thank you for your word, Lord. Help us to be very clear in our minds and hearts, what you're saying to us right here through your scriptures, what Paul meant when he wrote it. Thank you in Jesus' name, amen. This is a little bit shorter message, so I'm gonna get quick to the point. Point number one, treasuring Christ and remembering his sacrifice. Why do we take communion? We treasure Christ every month corporately by remembering his sacrifice. Verse 24 and verse 25 talks about the bread represents the broken body of Christ. Jesus was beaten. Jesus was spit on. Jesus was mocked and, uh, and abused. Jesus was whipped and flogged till perhaps his bones and organs were, uh, were shown because his back was filleted. He was beaten so badly. Jesus was thirsty. Jesus bled. Jesus hung on the cross. Jesus had a spear pierced to his side and blood and fluid came bursting forth. Jesus had a crown of thorns wedged onto his skull, ripping his, his, his skin, digging into his skull where blood was coming out of his head. Jesus was sacrificed for us. Jesus suffered dearly for us. And this is the hope that we live on. The fact that this happened and the fact that Jesus is God and he rose from the dead. This is why we gather here. This is it, brothers and sisters. And Jesus is saying, do this in remembrance of me. And as we take these elements today, as you come up, every Christian brother and sister are welcome. You come up. What does the actual crackers and the cup of juice represent? I had many Catholic friends uh, growing up. Uh, and in particular in football, and love these men, and uh, these, and the Catholics would say that the uh, 
they believe in this uh, a concept. All right, I'm going to try my best to uh, enunciate this, you know, so I have it broken down. Transubstantiation. All right, transubstantiation. What does that mean, Pastor? What that means is they actually believe that the cracker and the wine actually transform into literal body and, and blood of Jesus Christ. So the, the, my Catholic friends, as they take communion, they actually believe they're eating Jesus' flesh. And they actually believe that they're drinking Jesus' blood. Okay? And every time the priest, the Catholic priest, would break the wafer and serve up the, the, the cup, they believe that this priest is sacrificing Jesus all over again. He's going back to the cross. Not symbolically, but literally, the priest is sacrificing. And let me read this quote from a Catholic priest. John O'Brien, a Catholic priest, in his book, Faith of Millions, he writes this, describing what's taking place from his perspective. When the priest pronounces the tremendous words of consecration, comma, he reaches up into the heavens. The priest reaches up into the heavens, brings Christ down from his throne, brings Jesus down, and places him upon our altar, the Catholic altar, to be offered up again as a victim for the sins of many. He goes on to clarify, the priest brings Christ down from heaven and renders him present on our altar as the eternal victim for the sins of man. Not once, all right, just to clarify, not just once, not symbolically, but a thousand times, multiple times, Jesus is being sacrificed at every single mass. The priest speaks, and lo, Christ, the eternal and omnipotent God, bows his head in humble obedience to the priest's command. I don't know if you knew that, but that's what uh, Catholics believe, that Christ, that he submits to the priest by coming down out of heaven, and and the priest actually sacrifices Jesus uh, in that service over and over and over, every time. And you're literally eating the flesh. All right, let's talk about this from the scriptures. What does the Bible talk about uh, about how many times Jesus had to die in particular? So I'm going to go to Romans 6. We want to always look to the book. We also want to look to the Bible to see what truth is. Romans 6, 8 through 10. I'm going to read this for us out of the NASB. Now, Paul writes, Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him. Similar to baptism. Baptism is a symbol of dying with Christ, rising with him. Verse 9, Knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. Death no longer is master over him. Verse 10, for the death that he died, he died to sin once, once for all. Not every time the priest breaks the wafer or the cracker, once for all, over 2,000 years ago outside of Jerusalem. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. Jesus dies once. He's, he's, He's the Lamb of God one time. He's not the Lamb of God continually, over and over, submitting to the commands of the priest. Jesus died once for all. And so what does this mean? As we look to the text in verse 24 and 25, Jesus says, back to Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 11, 24 and 25, do this in remembrance of me. Why do we take communion? We do this to remember the immense sacrifice of Jesus Christ, period. It's an emblem, it's a symbol of Jesus' body broken and blood shed for us. This is not, you're not literally chewing on Jesus' flesh or drinking his blood. You are heartfelt, deep 
act of worship and communion with him and one another saying, yes, Lord, I remember the depth of what you went through for me and for the rest of the brotherhood and sister. I do this to remember. In America, we have many things like this. Memorial Day, we'll, we'll go to the, the, the cemeteries. They'll have, oftentimes, they'll have a, a, some type of service to uh, honor the military, those who have died in combat, who have given their lives or suffered through a serious injury through combat. We have that. We have Thanksgiving set up to remember, to be thankful. Jesus sets us up so that we will remember. This is not like, okay, Jesus died for me. This is every month we have it set up in our church at Evergreen to remember together with one another what Christ has done for us, to remember. So point number one, again, treasure Christ by remembering his immense sacrifice once for all. Right, once for all. Point number two, we're moving on. Treasure Christ in proclaiming him. Let's look at verse 26. I'm going to read this for a second. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, for often as you take communion, the Lord's Supper, for, every, for us it's every month at Evergreen, first Sunday of the month, the first Lord's Day of the month. You, what do you do? You proclaim, you herald, you preach, you make known, you make public the Lord's death until he comes. So every time you actually take the cracker and the juice, not only do you remember, you're making a proclamation to everyone in here that, yes, I believe that Jesus died for us. Yes, I believe that he's, he rose again. Yes, Jesus, I know you're coming back. Because as Christians, we identify in two things. We completely are identifying his death and resurrection. All right? But we also hope in his coming back. We're not just worshiping and, and, and worshiping a Jesus that's never coming back. Jesus is coming back. Jesus is coming back. And it says right here, we proclaim his death until he comes. He's coming back. Like I said, a couple of weeks ago, we had a baptism service. It was awesome. I think we were able to preach on what baptisms. I think we were able to learn more of the depths and meaning of what baptism. Why do we are why are we baptized in the public assembly of the church? It's to make a public proclamation. I believe Christ. He's my Lord and Savior. Help me live as a Christian. And I'm going to help you live as a Christian. And so and that's why I wanted to go see my sister-in-law before she was baptized. It's a big deal. It's a massive deal. Now, Communion is very similar. If baptism is a wedding, all right, a, 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 a wedding reception per se, communion is like an anniversary dinner. Like every, we coming together. Yes, we're married to Christ. Let's remember the seriousness of what this means. We're joined to Christ. So communion and baptism are meant by our Lord. He's only given us two ordinances, just two. And he, they, these two ordinances are meant to draw us even closer together as a body of Christ. All right, so let me give you a picture here. The national anthem. All right, we have this uh, great tradition in our American history where before big events, sporting events, political events, perhaps, you know, we, ha we sing the Star Spangled Band. We would rise. The men will take off their hats, Right? Many of us will put our hands over our hearts, and some of us will sing. And this is, why do we do this? As, as, as our minds are captured in, like, oh, man, this big event's about to happen. It's like, whoa, hold on now. Like, if, if, if it's at a sporting event, we've got two opposing fans. But for one moment, 
however long that song lasts, you know what? We're unified. We're still Americans, okay? And so this is why we do this. Why, why do we, we take time to reflect upon our shared heritage, our shared history, our shared value system, the shared privileges of being an American, right? Special is the greatest nation in the planet. We get to be part of this country. And it's meant also to reflect upon sacrifices that many men and brave women have paid to secure our freedoms. People in the armed forces, men and women have died. Men and women have uh, been injured. Men, Men and women have left home and family for long periods of times and suffered a lot of emotional and relational issues because of that. A lot of sacrifices have been made. So that's why we do this. And this should be the most unifying time as a nation. But as I think back to this uh, national anthem, and back in 2016, my final season with the Seattle Seahawks, this became the most divisive time for the nation and the most divisive time for a football team, perhaps. I mean, in light of the racial tensions that was going on and still going on, in light of uh, things of... uh, uh, things of police brutality against minorities and things like that. This is people were protesting. Players had a conviction. Like, I'm not going to stand for this. I'm going to kneel down in, in protest of how America is. How there's a prejudice. There's a racism against the minority groups. And what happened was it, was, it became a perhaps a black and white thing. It perhaps became, I'm associated with the military. I don't have associations with the military. It became, I'm a patriot. I love America too. Like, I don't like America. It became, like, why are you not standing? My uncle fought in the war. Like, he gave up his life. Like, you're not going to stand? You're disrespecting him. The fact that you could play and coach, and you're not going to acknowledge that is because of sacrifices done by men and women. Others were saying, no, that's not it. It's, I'm doing this because I definitely respect and honor the, our military forces, but it's because of unfair treatment. So it, it got really crazy. And this sort of thing could absolutely destroy a team. I'm telling you, you could have all the talent in the world. It's the things outside that could destroy the team. Not just injuries, all right? Not just a ball bouncing or strumming. So this is, was one of the issues that came up. In Corinth, communion, which was meant to be the most uh, uh, unifying time, became the most divisive time. It, destroyed, it divided the church in Corinth. It wasn't unifying, it was divisive. And let's find out what it was, okay? And let's see if we can extract the truth out of the scriptures and to see perhaps where does it apply to us today? Remember, there's only one meaning to the text, but there's a lot of applications. So verse, we've got verse 27 to 34 of 1 Corinthians 11, there was disunity in the body. Paul's telling the, uh, the Corinthians, you're taking communion in an unworthy manner. You need to examine yourself. You need to check yourself, my Corinthian brothers and sisters, Paul was saying. You're coming up here and... It's dishonoring the Lord. And it's so dishonoring to the Lord that God has disciplined some of you. Perhaps many of you guys are sick. And perhaps some of you have died because God was disciplining you. So I don't want to over-dramatize this. Some sicknesses, some deaths, God allows to happen to purify his church. Remember in Acts, Ananias, Sapphira? Boom, they dropped dead. Not all illnesses, okay? If you're going through illness, if, if, you're going, if you experience death or loss, 
because we live in a sinful, fallen world. But there are very unique instances where God will purify his church this way. So what was the actual issue in Corinth? Let's back up to verse 17, okay? This will give us a little bit more context. Verse 17 through 22. Verse 17 says this, But in giving this instruction, Paul writes, I do not praise you because you come together, not for the better, but for the worse, meaning it's better they even come together for communion. <laughs> Don't even take communion. It's actually worse. It's dividing you guys. It's dis- actually it's dishonoring the Lord more than it's honoring him. Verse 18, for in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that divisions exist among you, in, and in part I believe it. For there, must, for there must also be factions among you. There's divisions, there's factions, Paul is saying. All right? And so th- this is a serious thing that Paul is talking about. And what was the issue? Let's get to the specific. What were the Corinthians doing that was so divisive, what was so dishonoring to the Lord? What it was is this, the rich and poor. It was a socioeconomic thing. Like I talked about earlier, Corinth, there are people who are extremely wealthy, and just like in all societies, there's rich people and there's poor people. All right? And custom, custom of the time, in particular the first century, how the brothers and sisters would take communion, they would have a love feast, like a potluck, right? Like we went on what potlucks are. They would have a potluck, so they would feast together, eat together, and then afterwards, they would... Take communion, right? The bread is there, the drink, the wine is there, the juice is there. They take communion. Well, what, what happened was this. The rich, who had the money and the resources, it, may, it became a very exclusive event. The rich were eating together, not in their private homes, but in the assembled body, and the poor were kind of left off into the other overflow room, if mind you. The rich were eating and having a merry time. The poor were left out, and, and they were starving. They were hungry, and, and it was a basic and affront. It was kind of like, you know what? We could do whatever we want. Emphasis on liberty was there. In chapter 10 of Corinthians, they talked about, Paul talks about liberty. He's like, you know, I could do this. I have freedom in Christ. God made me rich. God gave me resources. What's wrong with having a meal with my friends, who happen to be all rich, by the way? What's wrong with that? That was the men's mindset. Well, Paul is saying you lack love. Verse thir- uh, chapter 13 of Corinthians, the love chapter, that's where all that comes in. Like, don't look at liberties. Look at how can you love one another more. That's the issue. It isn't how much liberty can I have, how many rights can I have, how many privileges can I have. How can I love my brother and sister more? That's the issue, Paul writes. They were op- acting opposite of the church in Acts chapter 2. What did that church, Jerusalem church in Acts 2 do? They had all things in common. Some people even sold stuff to meet the needs of the brotherhood and the sisterhood. All right? This is not where it's communism or socialism where we got to pull all our resources. But if someone had a need, they went, hey, hold on now. Let's, let's meet that need. They loved one another. They all, at the end of the day, they all believed that it was God's. It was all God's anyway. How can I steward what God's given me to bless the brotherhood, the, the sisterhood? That was the mindset in Acts chapter 2. First, in Corinth, Corinth, it was none of that. And what happened, as a matter of fact, so these rich Corinthians, did it become a gluttonous affair. People were eating to their stuffed. It was kind of an in-your-face type of thing to the poor. And these Corinthians were even getting drunk. And so what, ha- what would happen? All right, bring, the, bring everybody else in now. Let's take communion. They were stuffed. 
they were drunk, and they're offering up the bread and the wine to take communion in a completely unworthy manner. Imagine that. Imagine you're the poor Corinthian coming and it's like, what is this? What a mockery. Right? This is disrespectful to the Lord. Not remembering the sacrifice. Not proclaiming the death until he comes. Let's hear what Paul's rebuke is. Paul, the super pastor here, says this in verse 20. Paul stands up for what's right, stands up for those who can't defend themselves. Verse 20. Therefore, a 1 Corinthians letter, therefore, since there's divisions, therefore, since you are eating and separating yourself from the poor, when you meet together, it is not to eat the Lord's Supper. The only reason why you're gathering is to just fill your bellies up. This is not about Christ. This is about yourself, your own selfish wants. Verse 21, for in your eating, each one takes his own supper first. You're thinking about yourself. And one is hungry. That's the, that's the poor Corinthian. He's not eating. He or she's not eating. And another is drunk. There it is. You thought I made it up. There it is. <laughs> They're drunk. The Bible says. And look at Paul's response. My NASB says, what? With exclamation. What? Do you not have houses in which to eat and drink? The issue wasn't that they could have parties with one another, you know, in your private homes, the issue is that it flaunted it in the assembled church. That's wrong. You could host people, your friends. That's not wrong. He goes, don't you have houses to eat? Or do you despise the church of God? Are you, are you disrespecting the church that much? Do you respect Christ that much that you do this in front of everybody and shame those who have nothing? Look at this. Paul is cutting into them in love. What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? In this, I will not praise you, Paul says. Paul is a straight shooter. He'll tell you exactly what he thinks in love to help correct the Corinthians. They weren't taking uh, the the communion in a proper manner. It was routine. Let's eat. It was like more of a hashtag, let's take communion after this big feast. Let's just eat. You know, let's just get it over with. Let's just do it. Let's just come out. Let's invite those other guys in too. Let's just do it. We're supposed to do it. It got very routine. They trampled under their feet the sacrifice of Christ. They trampled under their feet the body of Christ, the other brothers and sisters. It was a mockery. It was an absolute mockery. And he, he, here's the issue. When there, whenever there is division at the communion table, the Lord's table, in Corinth or at everyone SUV, hear me now. Whenever you don't come unify in it, whenever there's some kind of thing within our hearts, in our minds, that kind of we come up as parts instead of one, think about this. This is very emblematic that there's division that exists in the life of the church. Don't just think he just came to fix communion, Paul. Paul came to fix issues that was living and going on in Corinth. So, that, so now, now that you got a fuller picture of what's happening in 1 Corinthians 11, at Evergreen SGV, like I said, this is a very interactive sermon here. Do we come to the Lord's table completely unified? Think about this now. Do we come to the Lord's table completely unified? Let me help a little bit. I was just praying through this and thinking through this. Um, understanding cultural values is key. In any family unit, church, team, business organization, 
country. You're going to have a shared value, all right, whatever it may be. And I would ask you right now, in your mind, you don't, you don't say it out loud, but you could if you want. <laughs> At Evergreen, what are, what, next to Christ, what is the high values of our church here at Evergreen SGV? Think about these things. Have it come to your mind. Think about these things. What comes to mind for me is one of many is that, you know, it's a good value. It's a very good value. We have a high value of the nuclear family. It's a good thing. I have a wife. I have four children. They're off at Mission Valley right now, but, you know, I, I, I love my wife. I love my child. I love your family units. This is important. This is a very good thing. However, I just want to say, I wasn't as aware when I was a, not a pastor, but now as a pastor, I, I, think, I try to think about the whole church family. We have many singles here, young and old. All right? We have divorced members in our church family here. All right? We have widowers who lost their husbands or their wives. We have couples who do, don't have children for whatever reason, either by choice or just physical issues. Like, well, for whatever reason, they don't have children. And as I get to learn more the condition of our church, I hear things like, I don't want to go up alone during communion. I see everybody together. I don't want to go up alone. And just as to quote Paul in verse 22, what? That, that, that sentiment pops into my mind. There's a jolt that happens in my heart. What? As I hear things like this. What are you talking about? It's completely opening up my eyes, completely humbling me. It's like, whoa, I, I'm not, I wasn't as aware of these things. I'm not thinking about these things. i got to get out of myself a little bit more. So what are we to do? If that's an issue, you come to the Lord's table and it's more of a family thing, a nuclear family thing, and it's kind of we're all into our little pods. And perhaps you have brother or sister come up kind of like, uh, kind of like by yourselves. And one of the sadder pictures is you know, sitting up here and perhaps it's beautiful to have the family, but then there's be like maybe two units and then there's one or two people just kind of by themselves and communion with the Lord. And Yes, there's a private thing with the Lord, but this, uh, communion, the word itself, communion is, is, is with the body. It's with one another. It's supposed to unify, not put you in a little silos. This is how God meant it to be. So what are we to do? Here's another thought that may help. Power is always in the hands who own what the culture values. So let me explain. So in Corinth, Corinth, they valued money. So if you're rich, you had the power, you had the juice, you, had, you could make stuff happen. You had the esteem, all right? So if you're someone here at Evergreen SGV and you're part of a really strong family unit, praise God. God's giving you some influence. God's giving you some power. If you're here with many good relationships and friends, praise God. That's great. You've been given power. As Voltaire has said, he's a French philosopher, I'm learning new people. Winston Churchill said, made for my younger brothers and sisters, what did Uncle Ben say to Peter Parker? Remember that? Or Spider-Man. What did, what did he say to Peter Parker? With great power comes great responsibility, right? 
we give Uncle Ben a lot, or Stan Lee the credit for a lot of that, but it was quoted before Stan Lee, okay? It was said before. So if, you ha- if you're in a position of power, what are you going to do about it? Now that I made you aware of this, perhaps, maybe you're already aware, what are you going to do about it? It means to take care of one another. So for the youth, let's start off with the youth in, in Surge and Bridge. If you have a lot of friends, you've been coming to church uh, at Evergreen forever, and you're well-established and you got new people coming or you see someone on the fringe, what are you doing to enfold them into the fellowship, into the brotherhood and sisterhood? I get it. It's a two-way street, all right? But I, if I wanted to put a number, I'd say it's 70-30, okay? 70 here and 30 here. You have the influence. You have the power. You have the security. Enfold them into the group. All right? Today, when we come to the Lord's table, all right, this is a challenging thing. I'm going to add another thought into your mind as you take communion. Say you're there with your family unit, which is great. I'm not saying you can't do that. You shouldn't. I'm not mandating anything. But you just notice someone, maybe new, or maybe someone's kind of on their own. Why not, brother, men? Maybe you're one of the 148 that was there. Say, hey, you know what? Shall we pray together? Let's commune together. Let's take communion together and, and, and remember and proclaim the Lord's death and his coming uh, together. How about that? Is that a novel idea? That would be wonderful. And I believe that's got to be the movement of the Spirit to do this. But I, I think these are good suggestions, okay, as I was praying and thinking about these things. When we come to the communion, rich or poor doesn't matter. Man or woman doesn't matter. Asian or non-Asian doesn't matter. Educated, uneducated doesn't matter. Young or old doesn't matter. Married or unmarried doesn't matter. With children, no children. It doesn't matter. I'm with Christ. That's what matters. A Christ Centered culture treasures Christ above everything else. That's why this is a treasuring Christ series. Christ absolutely unifies. And, and you may be asking, Pastor, I thought we were starting a, 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 a financial stewardship series. What has this got to do with financial stewardship? It's everything to do with financial stewardship. Let me explain. Whether it's communion, whether it's financial stewardship, giving to the work of Christ, serving at the uh, altar cleanup yesterday. Thank you for those who did. Whether it's preaching or your family life, it starts with the heart. The emphasis is not on doing. You got to take communion. You got to be good to one another. You got to give. That's not it. It starts with the heart. You will give to what you treasure. You treasure Christ. You will give to Christ. He who was rich who became poor so that you and I could become rich, it's, not, it's a no-brainer. I want to advance the purposes of Christ. I want to take communion with this holy attitude like, Jesus, you gave up everything for me. You came off the throne once on your own volition, not some, from some priest, but on your own volition, and you died for me so that I could be your, your brother, so I could be part of the brotherhood and sisterhood. Remember, communion, giving, serving, it's simply an expression of how much we treasure Christ. Bottom line. And that's going to be the theme of this giving series for seven straight weeks. Treasuring Christ. 
Next week we'll talk a little bit more specifically about money and stuff like that, but this is at the heart of it. In some ways, you don't need to, this could end the series right now, boom, done. Treasuring, how much do you love Christ? How much do you treasure what he has done for you and me? Eternal hell? Eternal heaven with him. Now let's look at verse 27 and 28 here. I want to guess back onto the Bible here. <clears throat> 1 Corinthians eleven twenty-seven. 27. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. Verse 28, but a man must examine himself, and in so doing, he is to eat of the bread and drink of the cup. Examine myself today. So today, what a privilege. I mean, we get to actually practice what we're preaching right now. <laughs> in a few moments, we're going to be able to take Holy Communion here together with one another. And I want you to take it all in. I want, to, I want you to see the line. I, don't, I want you to see the people around you. I want you to see certain facial expressions with one another. That's why when we sing, I like to look around and, man, this is awesome. I like to feel one another. I want you to just feel like, man, all of us are saying that we're with Christ. This is a big deal. Two things I want you to examine, though, as you're in line. First thing, it's, it goes without saying, but I must say, am I a genuine believer? If you're a Christian, by all means, please come and worship. Whether you're part of this church family regularly or not, come. You belong. This is awesome. If you're not, we say, please do not take communion. We don't want judgment to be poured out on you. I say this because I love you. It's like, it's like a stop sign. Don't do this. All right? No one's going to judge you if you don't take communion. Number two, do I have sin to deal with? Here's some suggestions I'm going to give you. So do I need to deal with sin? The Corinthians need to deal with sin. They need to come to the communion table in a worthy manner. First one, sin issue to pray about. And I'm going to give some time after this some, to, uh, to deal with business with the Lord. Communion, have I treated this as some routine exercise? Uh, let me just get this over with. Is this some routine exercise? I hear some horrific stories where uh, some church, churches, they just hand out communion on your way out the door. Like, what? We're not doing that. We're not doing that. So has this become a routine exercise? If so, we need to repent. Okay? Number, uh, point B of do I need to deal with sin is, do I need to forgive somebody right now? Is there somebody right now who's wronged you, sinned against you, and you need to forgive them? Number point C, do I need to ask for forgiveness from somebody? Now, right now may not be the time we get up and start talking to them, but before repentance starts with the Lord first. Do you need to repent? Like, man, I wronged this brother or sister. I wronged this other person. I'm so sorry, Lord. These are, these are some things to consider right now. And as you may be seeing there, Pastor, you know what? You don't know what's been done to me. I can't forgive that person. You may be thinking that right now, and it's a hurtful thing that happened. And a couple of brothers sent this to me this week. I'm sure many of you have seen this. I seen a video this week in a courtroom of a brother of a man murdered. Both of them, John, was murdered. And an off-duty police officer shot this person. White woman shot a black man. And he 
She's been sentenced to 10 years, I believe, for murder. And basically, this man is sitting on the, on the, uh, on the witness stand saying, you know what, I forgive you. My brother, he would want you to give your life to Christ. I forgive you, tearful. And he asked the judge, can I get up and hug her? And there was like this moment of silence, like what? Uh, okay, she goes, she, the judge says yes. And he hugs her and there's tearful kind of reconciliation taking place. That's the power of the gospel. <laughs> the gospel restores and reconciles. No matter what you've been through, you can forgive. Remember that. If you don't believe that, you're trampling underfoot what Christ did on the cross for you and me. Amen? So I'm going to pray right now. I want us to come with the holy attitude, purified. Would you take doing business with the Lord right now? I'm going to open up this time of prayer, so let's pray. And I'm gonna, there's going to be some silence for you to do some business with the Lord. Father, we thank you for your scriptures. Thank you for how 1 Corinthians 11 teaches us the power of communion. I thank you for this opportunity to preach your word. I thank you that you use a man like Paul to straighten out the Corinthians. So right now, Lord, I pray if there's any issues of lack of respect, lack of regard for communion, or any sin issues of forgiveness, I pray, Lord, that you would do this right now and you would bring to mind what we need to do business with you. So go ahead and pray in your hearts and minds. I'll give you about a minute. Father, I thank you for this time. Purify your people. Make us more holy. And may we take communion with a holy attitude, holy mindset. And I pray you will grow the unity of the church with one another because we identify completely in you, Jesus. We treasure you above all. In Jesus' name, amen.